Hello, good evening, and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moylodi McLean, back for my first show of 2024, joined by the brilliant Dahlia Gabriel. Hi, Moya. I'm sorry, my camera's not my best today. Um, I've had a bit of an issue with my proper Navara Live camera, so you're getting a slightly blurry, pixelated version of me, but, you know... We're starting every- as we mean to go on, obviously, for this year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you still look wonderful. And every time I do my Navarro Lives from home as a co-host, I always have a blurry pixelated version. So you're just coming down to my level, really. Let's go to our first story. Britain is one of 50 countries around the world that will be heading to the polls in 2024. And Labour leader Keir Starmer wants to ensure it will be his party booting the incumbent and incompetent Conservatives out of government after 14 very long years. Starmer gave his first big speech of 2024 today and he hit a lot of increasingly familiar beats about overcoming political apathy and rediscovering hope. This year at the general election, against the tide of cynicism in Westminster, the dauntlet of fear the Tories will unleash, and most of all, the understandable despair of a downtrodden country, I will ask the British people to believe in it again. I will say, you're right to be anti-Westminster, right to be angry about what politics has become, but hold on to the flickering hope in your heart that things can be better, because they can. You can choose it. You can choose the hope of national renewal, the responsibility of service, what politics can and should be, and you can reject the pointless populist gestures, the low road cynicism that the Tories believe is all you deserve. Now, this was a speech clearly aimed at disengaged voters. Political analysis from the last year has repeatedly suggested that while Labour have a huge poll lead over the Tories, this likely comes from Tory voters choosing to stay home rather than coming out to back Labour. Starmer wants to galvanise those voters and the swing voters into actively supporting his party, as he outlined in his speech. What really keeps me up at night is a different reaction altogether. The biggest challenge we face, bar none, the shrug of the shoulder. Because this is the paradox of British politics right now. Everyone agrees we're in a huge mess. Services on their knees, an economy that doesn't work for working people, even when it grows, let alone when it stagnates like now. Everyone agrees as well that it's been like this for a while, that Britain needs change, wants change, is crying out for change. And yet, trust in politics is now so low, so degraded, that nobody believes you can make a difference anymore. Also that after the sex scandals, the expenses scandals, the waste scandals, the contracts for friends, even in a crisis like the pandemic, some people have looked at us and concluded We're all just in it for ourselves. A nation that is so exhausted, tired, despairing even, that they've given up on hope. A national mood which, if we aren't successful with our project hope, the Tories will subtly seek to exploit. And seriously, after failing to deliver change, after ludicrously pretending that they could represent change. 
they now sense the opportunity of a new strategy, an attempt to take the change option off the table altogether, and not just at the next election. No, their strategy has also one eye on salting the earth of Britain's future, a plan to make sure that if Labour does earn the right to serve, we will find it harder to bring our country together for the common good. So I say to every voter in this country, know that all this is coming your way. Know that if we are to heal the wounds of the past 14 years and move forward, Britain must come together. And that means we will need you. A galvanising speech, but what of the policy that needs to back it up? Beth Rigby at Sky News had the same question. Keir Starmer, part of your pitch today seems to be to try to energise apathetic voters, but beyond the rhetoric in that speech, and there was lots of it, when you get to the nuts and bolts of a Labour government, on public services you say money's so tight you won't invest, on tax you more or less ape the Tories, and you seem to be ditching your one big idea, uh, which is big money uh, for green investment. Your entire pitch seems to be vote Labour to see the back of the Tories. Isn't there a danger that voters will see you not as a leader of change, but one who's overly cautious and timid and who turns them off? Well, Beth, I think if you look at this distinction, the change that we're offering, the difference that we want to make, between 14 years of decline and a decade of national renewal, they are two fundamentally different things. And underpinning the decade of national renewal, these are not just words. I've set out over the last 12 months five national missions that we will seek to achieve over the period of the next Labour government. Um, and they are really ambitious uh, the idea that there's no change, the highest sustained growth in the G7 felt with living standards improved across the whole of the country, that's huge. Nobody says to me that that's a minor difference. It's a huge, huge difference. Clean power by 2030 will be lower bills, energy security, the next generation of jobs. Nobody says to me um, that's no difference to the Tories. They say, how are you going to achieve it? When we say we want high, uh, safer streets, within which we are committing to halving violence against women and girls. No government or opposition has ever committed to that before. And I know from my work as chief prosecutor just how hard that is. Nobody says to me that's no difference. Um, if it's the opportunities that our children need, the skills they need, nobody says that's no difference. Um, and whether it's the NHS that is, you know, not just on its knees, on its face at the moment, being picked up and made fit for the future. Nobody says to me, that's no different. These are huge, fundamental differences. And the power this year is with the voters to vote for that change. So I think there's a huge, clear distinction here. We've set out our case in terms. It is very clearly um, the risk of going on with 14 more years of this decline or turning our face to the task of national renewal. And uh, that, I think, is a fundamental difference in politics. Notice how Starmer didn't actually say how they'd renew the NHS or fund these policies, while still saying that Labour wouldn't borrow and invest. In fact, 
He even appeared to somewhat roll back on the one big green policy that Labour has already altered since they first announced it, and that is the £28 billion promised for green investment. Starmer's latest retreat came when Christopher Hope of GB News asked how Labour planned to fund the pledge. Here is how Starmer responded. We've set out um, how that will be funded, um, the money that is needed for the investment that is undoubtedly needed, saying that the £28 billion will be ramped up in the second half of the Parliament, that will be subject, of course, uh, to any money that the government is already putting in, and it will be subject to our fiscal rules. Um, and that means that um, if the money is from borrowing, which it will be borrowing to invest, but the fiscal rules don't allow it, then we'll borrow less. Um, so it's very clear, and that's why this attack is, is, is utterly misconceived on us. Um, it's a very clear strategy, and frankly, I think most people understand the argument. Uh, it's an everyday argument that you have to invest in the future, and that's what we will do. It's the lack of investment, the lack of long-term thinking that has put us in the position we're in now. We're more exposed on the international market when it comes to energy than many other countries. Why? Because the government never took long-term decisions. I'm not prepared for an incoming Labour government to make that mistake. Now, there's a sleight of hand going on here, because Starmer says they won't borrow that £28 billion if it doesn't meet the fiscal rules, but Labour will make the fiscal rules if in government. So is this a true rollback or an attempt not to get skewered by right-leaning media and a Tory party before the general election? Interestingly, Labour MP John McDonnell published an op-ed in The Guardian today and it argued that if a Labour government fails to deliver radical change, the far right will fill the gap. McDonnell wrote this. If there's a vacuum in the political debate, both in the run-up to the election and also as importantly, after the election, it will be filled by others. And this is my warning. There is a real and rising danger that this political vacuum could be filled by the far right. The polling figures for the Reform Party demonstrate already how a far right populist programme can pull the major parties onto a right wing agenda. People will be patient as they fully realise how broken Britain is, but the foundations of credible and radical change will have to be seen to be laid early in the life of the incoming Labour government. People will need to see how there is a real strategy to restore the value of wages and incomes held back for so long under the Tories, how investment in our public services is taking place, and how reform doesn't mean more privatisation, and how the grotesque levels of inequality in our society are being reduced. Dahlia, what do you make of John McDonald's warning to Starmer? One echoed a bit by Beth Rigby's question about policy specifics. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a very sober argument and it is backed up by historical record. We know that this is something, this is when the far right gains power, is when people become disillusioned with establishment politics and when there isn't a viable alternative. Um, the main thing that I would tweak about his argument is that I think it's already happened. I think that the lack of vision from the centre-left of the British political spectrum and the lack of vision from the Labour Party, the lack of cohesive opposition, um, has seen the Conservative Party essentially parroting the lines and frameworks and way of doing politics that was 
introduced by the far right 10 years ago. A lot of the core principles that today's Tory party have centered themselves around um, you know, things like leaving the European Human Rights Commission, things like mor moral panics around grooming gangs, um, severely cutting legal routes to migration, making it virtually impossible to be a refugee in Britain, to safely seek refuge in Britain. These are all hallmarks of the kinds of politics that are pioneered not only by Nigel Farage, we often talk about Nigel Farage being one of the most influential politicians of certainly of this century um, in British politics, particularly when it comes to the Conservative Party, but actually also from Nick Griffin, who is the former leader of the BMP. This kind of politics that was first normalized 10 or 15 years ago by these far-right people who were considered to be far-right has now very much become the mainstream uh, of the Conservative Party. And that has been partially due to a lack of organized vision um, of an alternative, both from both main from, from the previous mainstreams of both parties. So both from the kind of Cameron-esque and the kind of Miliband-esque now going on to um, Keir Starmer style Labour Party. And for me, what I really worry about is look, you know, the Conservatives are polling, you know, a government has never, like an incumbent party has never won an election with the kind of polling figures that the Conservatives currently have. So it's fairly reasonable to assume that Labour should be able to win the next election. My worry is, and this is what, you know, John McDonnell is kind of echoing, is that the, the fact of nothing substantive being offered, the fact that the, that the um, that Starmer's Labour Party have got no core set of principles that they can stick to that are red lines for them. And also the fact that Keir Starmer represents everything that everyone hates about Westminster. You know, he talked in that clip about how people have a right to be angry at Westminster. You are the, like, the definition of Westminster because you are the exact you are everything that people say that they hate about establishment politics because you are the kind of person who basically says whatever you think the person wants to hear, the people who are in front of you want to hear in order to get to where you want to be in your career. He did that to the Labour Party members when he became leader of the Labour Party. I think many of us forget that this is not Keir Starmer's pitch um, when he was running to be leader of the Labour Party. And I think a lot of people in this country rightfully are using his past behavior as the greatest indicator of his future behavior. And so that combination of things means that we are going to see a conservative party, which is already dominated by the far right, which already has a very far right identity, basically regrouping and possibly reconsolidating around those principles. So I agree very much with John McDonald's analysis. I just don't think that the far right politics is going to come in the form of the reform party. I don't think that's the worry. I think it's what the cons the current conservative party is going to look after it's had, you know, five years to, to regroup. Because at the moment, they actually have more ideological cohesion than the Labour Party or more, ide more strong, like, ideological identity. It's just that the party itself is in disarray. And they are going to have five years of a very weak Labour government to regroup and lay the groundwork for them to emerge in a very cohesive and scary way. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think it's going to come through the Conservative Party rather than through 
kind of the reform party or any other kinds of fringes. And that to me is is what's so scary about this current moment. To be fair to John McDonnell, he did write, the risk then is the potential for a significant shift in our politics to the right, with the return of a Conservative Party completely shorn of any traditional One Nation Tories and under the dominance of the populist right, both within the party and beyond. So I think John McDonnell's thinking along the same lines as well. Starmer's speech obviously seems to be trying to reach the disillusioned, even if his policy isn't following. But will he and his lieutenants heed McDonnell's warning. We will be waiting a little longer to find out because on a visit to Nottinghamshire today, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak seemed to confirm to Sky News that a general election was forthcoming, but not in the immediate future. It's a new year. Is it also going to be a general election year? Yes. <laughs> so look, my, my working assumption is we'll have a general election in the second half of this year. And in the meantime, I've got lots that I want to get on with. Lots to get on with is a truly unique way of saying I'm trying to avoid a historic car crash defeat in the next general election. A hell of a task because Labour's poll lead over the Tories has increased to about 17 points, according to the latest survey from We Think, which is a polling think tank. The Tories, meanwhile, have sunk to a projected 26% of the vote. Sam Friedman is a senior fellow at the Institute for Government and a former advisor to Michael Gove, and he pointed out how historic this low is, saying this. It's worth emphasising again that neither of the main parties, let alone the one in government, have ever gone into an election year averaging as low as the Tories are now, not even in 1997. Uh, Dahlia, we know now the election won't be until the second half of this year, potentially coinciding with a US election, although it's been mooted to be about a week afterwards. Everyone keeps saying to me, that's mad. US election at the same time, that's mad. Is this mad? Tell me. I mean, I think that it's going to be a very odd time because I think that we're going to feel almost a little bit of weird deja vu um, because I think that it's not unlikely that Donald Trump will be back as the Republican nominee and that he will have a really solid chance against Biden. Uh, I wouldn't have said that before the Israeli aggression on Gaza um, because, because I really think that the thing that will influence that election um, and the thing that could potentially cost Biden that election is that many people who were willing to pinch their nose and vote for Biden are not willing to because they see him correctly as facilitating a genocide in Gaza. And that simply crosses the red line for so many people who probably won't come out and vote for Trump, but they'll just stay at home or vote for a third party candidate or just vote down ballot and not vote for the president in the presidency. Um, and so, and you know, the US and similarly in Britain as well, like to pretend that there's this really hard line between domestic popularity and kind of foreign policy. Obviously, that has never been true. But I think that the fact that that is not true has been especially heightened by the way in which the American electorate is so moved by what's happening. Many people in the, in the US electorate are very moved by what's happening in Gaza, particularly people who would potentially be Democrat voters. And that will have a really strong influence on what the kind of what terrain the election here will be fought on. Uh, I think that if we see that a kind of populist 
uh, very far right Donald Trump, you know, because this is not the Donald Trump of of the previous election. This is not a Donald Trump that is a deer caught in the headlights. This is a Donald Trump who is full of vengeance and has experience and will be a totally different beast. And I worry that that will, you know, push even the the framework. Because let's remember, even if Labour does win the election, the way that the that that election is fought, the terrain on which it is fought, and the way those chips fall, and the way that the Tories fight that election and continue beyond that is going to shape how Labour governs and what kind of principles that Labour sees as being essential to holding together whatever whatever coalition that they win. And I think by having a kind of repeat of that Donald Trump-esque um, politics is going to potentially really negatively impact um, and push to the right our election in this country. Um, but also, it I think it will be expected from both parties for them to have a vision of what it, what they're going to engage with that kind of US presidency, what what way they're going to engage with that kind of US presidency. Because let's forget, let's not forget, this is post-Brexit Britain, um, the relationship with the US, which has always been important and has always been kind of an essential part of British politics, has renewed in even more in terms of its importance. So I think it's terrifying for a global, you know, it's a terrifying prospect of that election for, in, on, on a global sense. But I'm also going to be interested to see how the way that the politics of that US dynamic plays out is going to kind of shape what happens in in the in the election in Britain. Whenever the general election will be though, one thing really is for sure. The mainstream media is pretty bereft of left-wing perspective. Uh, and we want to scale up our resources so that we can provide the widespread coverage the left really deserves to ramp up our scrutiny of policy, stand up for people's humanity, rights, and living standards, and really hold our politicians to account across the political spectrum. So if you're able to support independent, truthful media in 2024, head to navaramedia.com slash support to join our regular supporters from just £1 per month, because this is the election year to end all election years, and we want to be across it globally, not just in the UK. Let's go on to our next story. Last summer, Rishi Sunak pledged to, quote, max out the UK's North Sea oil fields, which is a very cool and groovy thing for a premier to say, I think you'll all agree. Then in September, the government granted a licence to develop the huge Rosebank oil field, which is located west off the Shetland Islands. The field is thought to contain up to 500 million barrels of oil, as well as large reserves of natural gas. Environmental campaigners have said that excavating the field is at odds with Britain's climate change pledges. That's because burning all that oil would admit as much CO2 as running 56 coal-burning power stations for a year. But Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had a counter-argument. Here's what he said when the licence to develop the field was granted last year. Scotland's North Sea industry is a really important part of its economy and it provides energy security for the UK. I don't want our young children to grow up and be dependent on foreign dictators like Putin for our energy. I want more offshore wind, I want more uh, nuclear, and I want, um, in transition, more gas that comes from home rather than being imported from abroad at, by the way, two, three, four times the carbon emissions when we do that. So the argument there is that's a question of energy security and actually saving 
emissions. We need to develop these huge oil fields so we can take care of our own energy supply rather than relying on foreign powers like Russia and wasting all those emissions shipping it in. Except it turns out that was all a lot of hot air. The government has now admitted that the vast majority of oil from Rosebank will be sold on international markets, making almost no difference to the UK's energy security. Responding to a written question from Labour MP, Mr Lloyd Russell Moyle, the government said this. Due to UK refinery specifications and global market conditions, around 80% of the oil produced in the UK is refined overseas into the products demanded by the UK market. It is not desirable to force private companies to allocate oil and gas produced in the North Sea for domestic use. So not only was Sunak talking nonsense when he said Rosebank would improve our energy security, the government doesn't even think it's a desirable outcome to do that. The companies developing Rosebank include Equinor, Norway's state-owned oil company, probably heard their ads all over regular podcasts, and Suncor Energy, a Canadian firm. Earlier today, I spoke to Laura MacDonald, who's been campaigning against the Rosebank oil field. As you know, today, the UK government has finally admitted what we've known all along in that Rosebank's oil will not lower our energy bills or deliver energy security. So where the profits um, from Rosebank would go is actually mainly to Norway. So the Rosebank oil field is is owned by Equinor, um, which is a Norwegian state-owned oil company. And the UK taxpayer will pass on 90% of the development costs of Rosebank to Equinor. Um, So thanks to a a very generous oil and gas tax system um, from the UK government, we will in fact, and that's the UK taxpayer, will be handing over around £3 billion to Equinor just for going ahead with the field. Um, And when we put this in the context of um, the energy crisis that we're facing in the UK, it's it's really scandalous. So in 2022, Equinor, um, the company behind the field, made what they posted pre-tax profits of £62 billion. And that was in the same year that our energy prices, like the cost to the consumer, doubled and 7 million households were, were forced into fuel poverty. So that's the, the situation as it stands. So are we basically subsidising Norway's cheap energy? Yes, we, we effectively are subsidising um, Norway's cheap energy, as you say. Um, Norway likes to paint... Um, itself as a world leader in renewables and when we think of Norway we think of this prosperous green country but in fact that is off the back of uh, putting the brakes on other countries energy transitions so whilst Norway is um, expanding their renewable capacity its state-owned oil company Equinor is pushing for expansion of new oil and gas projects across the world, not only in the UK, but also, uh, for example, in Brazil and Canada and Argentina. Um, and meanwhile, in the UK, our energy system is in, is in a dire, dire state. Um, and oil fields like Rosebank will only lock us into an expensive and polluting energy system for far longer than necessary. 
if we're not seeing energy security, we're not seeing bills going down, what impacts will we be seeing from Rosebank, both financially and environmentally? We believe that the decision to approve Rosebank is not only morally and economically egregious, but also actually unlawful. And we have um, several grounds upon which we will be challenging the UK government in the courts this year over their decision to approve Rosebank. Um, it's, It's obvious to say, but we absolutely cannot have any new oil and gas projects if we want to have a safe and livable planet in the future. That is unanimous within the scientific community. The UK government and world leaders across the world have been warned time and again and again and again that we cannot have any new fossil fuel projects, but our government ignores that for the sake of profit and wants to push with more um, fossil fuel projects. They want to um, extract every last drop of oil out of the North Sea, which if we're going to have any air to breathe and land to live on in the future, that's just not going to work. The legal challenge that you're submitting, what is the outcome you're kind of gunning for there? What what do you hope the courts decide? We're feeling pretty confident about the grounds that we have. And we hope that, um, of course, the court will rule in our favour. And if that were to happen, what it would mean is that the decision that was taken to approve Rosebank, if it were declared unlawful, um, the decision would be effectively annulled and it would have to be uh, made again, which of course, um, you know, with a general election coming up, there, there are many variables beyond that point, but that's kind of the, the short-term conclusion that we're hoping for. As you mentioned, we've got a general election coming up. Is the plan now to pressure the Labour Party while also submitting these court challenges um, and hope that they U-turn on their pledge to honour all existing gas and oil licences that have been issued by the Tory government? Labour has actually committed to not issuing any new um, permits for developing oil and gas fields. So, of course, if Labour were to come into power in the UK, we would uh, make sure that 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 promise is 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 made good and that there will be no new oil and gas fields in the UK. This is something that we're um, ready to um, see through in the long run. And I'm feeling very confident about that because the fact of the matter is that we simply cannot afford to burn any more oil and gas from any new oil and gas fields. It would literally be a death sentence for our planet. So one way or another, we will make sure that that oil stays in the ground. Labour has said that they would honour any um, licences that were previously accounted for if they were to get into power, um, which, of course, we think there shouldn't be any new licences issued either. But it is uh, worth noting the technical point that um, when we talk about licences, we're actually talking about what is effectively a lease for oil and gas companies to explore for oil and gas, which is a much earlier stage in the process than um, an oil and gas field actually being developed, if that makes sense. So the most urgent priority is making sure that um, new oil fields don't go ahead because that's um, the most likely to lead to new oil. Whereas with new um, oil and gas licenses, which is much earlier in the process, there is um, a success rate of only a few percent of any of those licenses actually 
um, coming to produce any oil. So, of course, we think there should be no new licenses as well. But in terms of strategic priorities, it's much more urgent that we tackle new fields. That was Rosebank campaigner Lauren McDonald speaking to me earlier today. Let's go on to our next story. Fears are growing that Israel's war against Gaza will spill out into the wider region. The US, UK and 11 other states have warned Houthi rebels in Yemen against further attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. US Security Council coordinator John Kirby detailed that warning in this statement. As the president has made clear, the United States does not seek conflict with any nation or actor in the Middle East, nor do we want to see the war between Israel and Hamas widen in the region. But neither will we shrink from the task of defending ourselves, our interests, our partners, or the free flow of international commerce. That's why earlier today, we released a joint statement alongside 12, I'm sorry, 11 countries condemning Houthi attacks on commercial vessels in the Red Sea, one of the world's most critical waterways, and reiterating that these attacks must cease immediately. And just after we released that statement, Singapore came on board. So now there's 13 nations that have signed up to that statement. As we've made clear, these actions directly threaten freedom of navigation and global trade, and they put innocent lives at risk. This joint statement demonstrates the resolve of global partners against these unlawful attacks and underlines our commitment to holding Malina actors accountable for their actions. The Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen have declared support for Gaza following Israel's relentless bombardment of the territory and the Palestinians within it since October. And since November, the Houthis have launched more than 20 attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea using fast boats, helicopters and drones. Some have been hijacked. Twelve multinational shipping companies have now halted all passage through the Red Sea, resulting in major knock-on effects to international supply chains. This US-Western coalition hasn't yet said what repercussions will follow for the Houthis if they don't back down. When asked what the consequences might be, British Foreign Secretary David Cameron today declined to answer. But despite international threats and pressure, the Houthis remain defiant. They vowed to continue to attack ships they consider to have links to Israel. Iran has also entered the Red Sea, sending a warship to the region. Iranian state media has reported that the country's Alboras warship passed into the Red Sea earlier this week to, quote, secure shipping lanes, repel pirates, among other purposes. That move follows Iran's rejection of US and UK calls for the country to end its support of Houthi rebels. Instead, the Secretary of Iran's Supreme National Security Council praised the rebels' quote, brave actions against quote, Zionist aggression. Yesterday, we discussed the blasts in the Iranian capital Tehran, another cause of rising tensions. The death toll there has been revised down to 84, with the blast apparently caused by two remote-controlled bombs. In response, Iran's leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, has now promised a harsh response. Senior Iranian politician also publicly blamed the US and Israel for the attack, although the Islamic State has now claimed responsibility for the bombings. Elsewhere, though, the US has claimed responsibility for a different attack. In Baghdad, a US airstrike has killed the high-ranking Iraqi commander of an Iran-backed militia inside Iraq. The U.S. blamed the militia for recent attacks on American forces in Iraq. Since the beginning of Israel's campaign against Palestine and Gaza, the group called Islamic Resistance in Iraq has launched more than 100 attacks on bases housing U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. Now, this U.S. airstrike follows the killing in Lebanon of senior Hamas official Saleh al-Urui by, allegedly, an Israeli attack. 
These events all come in the context of increasing cyber-rattling from the US and Israel. Last week, former Israeli Prime Minister Natafali Bennett wrote this on Twitter. Iran is a terror octopus. Its arms, Hamas, Hezbollah and the Houthis are sowing chaos and terror across the world. It's time for the US and its allies to target its head, Tehran, and bring down its regime. Meanwhile, John Bolton, former National Security Advisor to Donald Trump, wrote this in The Telegraph. It's been clear for some year, for years that overthrowing the mullahs and replacing them with some other form of government that enjoys the support of Iran's citizenry is central to decreasing insecurity throughout the Middle East. So, is a wider war on the cards? As much as the US and the UK might like to deny it, rising tensions are directly connected to Israel's assault on the Palestinians in Gaza. The Iran-backed militia in Iraq have said they won't back down until Israel ceases its genocidal acts. But a war with Iran would not be easy. Our colleague Aaron Bastani has made this argument in Unheard. The potential downsides of a botched war with Iran, a nation three times the size of Iraq, are hard to exaggerate. The country's landmass is the side of Germany, France and Ukraine combined, while decades of sanctions have made it an industrial autarky, which produces more steel than any EU country except Germany. Iran has the capacity to feed itself, enjoys an abundance of fossil fuels, whose sale, as with Russia, has blunted the effectiveness of US sanctions and has an impressive military-industrial complex. But even if a war against Iran is, from a Western point of view, successful, whatever that means, the impact on Europe would be profound. Aaron goes on to say this. A blockade of the Strait of Hormuz, central to Iranian self-defense doctrine, would send energy prices far higher than last year. But to America, that is perhaps not a major concern. High energy prices aren't all bad for a net exporter like the US. While millions of displaced Iranians might head west as refugees displaced by war, few would cross the Atlantic. So it's easy to see why the likes of John Bolton are calling for war. Insulated by two giant oceans, America sees few of the downsides when things go wrong. While war with Iran might not be good from Washington's perspective, particularly if large sums of money are spent and casualties suffered, for Europe it would be an unadulterated disaster. Given the key foreign policy decisions made by the US in recent decades, we're entering very dangerous water. Dahlia, what are your thoughts? How close are we to a wider war breaking out in the Middle East? I mean, I think it is certainly on the cards and I wouldn't, I mean, look, there has been a very unsustainable situation in the region for a very long time. You know, we know that the way in which these global powers are choosing to fight one another is through these kind of, you know, that the whole situation is held together by this very tenuous and fragile idea of like proxy wars and shadow wars and this idea that you can have kind of boundaries of acceptable escalation where, you know, wars are fought and conflict is, is, is unfolds along the lines of, for example, very specific military targets and that there are certain red lines. And those red lines have been crossed now as they are almost inevitably, as was inevitably going to happen. Um, they were already kind of being crossed when, um, you know, the when Qasem Soleimani was assassinated under the instruction of Donald Trump. Certainly the recent attack in southern Lebanon by Israel on, you know, citizens, that is a very significant and concrete escalation. And so in a sense, yes, we have gotten closer in recent, in the past few days, 
But it was always a very unsustainable situation anyway. And this idea that there was this kind of manageable escalation um, was always very tenuous and was always based on innuendo and and implicit agreement. Um, And I think particularly as we're looking on the horizon of potentially another Trump presidency, I think that that will also further increase the possibility, if we don't get there all before um, November, will further increase the possibility because the Democrats, you know, Biden is probably less inclined to want to enter into a direct war with Iran. And for so many reasons, because of, you know, the casualties for the US, it pretty much has worked for them to secure their interests through these proxy wars. It's an incredibly important strategic geographic region geographically. You don't want there to be huge amounts of like flux and, 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 you know, essentially it's a very important part for the of the world in terms of the movement of global capital. You don't really want to disrupt that. Whereas with Trump, we see much more, and those that surround Trump, like John Bolton, a much more ideological desire to to go to war with Iran. And you match that with the fact that Israel has long been beating the the war drum against Iran um, because, you know, they obviously perceive Iran to be, and Iran's activities in the region, to be the main thing or one of the main things that is blocking the kind of complete hegemony that they want to enjoy in the region. You know, they've already managed to kind of defang a lot of the Arab governments. And so Iran to them is really the main block to the vision that they have for themselves in in the region. And so that combination of things, that potential combination is certainly very worrying. But even before we get to something to, to November, what is so concerning here is kind of the beast that has been created over many, many years. In the long term, it's the fact that Israel knows that whatever it does, it will have the U.S.'s support, even if it gets itself embroiled in a war that the U.S. has made pretty clear um, that it doesn't want to be directly involved in at the moment or that it doesn't want to see these kinds of escalations. Israel has been given the very clear message, particularly over the past few months, but also long before then, that there are no red lines and there are no boundaries on the US's militaristic and political support. And so this is kind of the logical endpoint when this is what um, Israel's fundamental goal in the region is. And another thing that really concerns me is the shambolic military operation um, that Israel has conducted in the region, which obviously, you know, we can we know the moral and and the immorality and the illegality of the war is completely clear. But even from a militaristic point of view, there have been very few concrete wins as far as the Israeli military is 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 concerned. Um, I guess if you're you know that the in terms of their military objective, there isn't an achievable military objective. There isn't an achieve, you know, they say that the objective of the war is to eliminate Hamas. That's not a, like, a measurable or even, like, reasonable goal, because as we know, the more that you create this kind of carnage, the more likely you are going to reproduce movements like Hamas. So, the fact that there is no clear military objective and there have been no military wins and there is no it's a militaristically very incohesive strategy means that what it essentially is is a war with no end and when you have something that is a war with no end and therefore just simply becomes about expressing power and might and a willingness to engage in the most unimaginable 
you know, rule-breaking violence and genocide, then there's nothing, what's going to then curb the escalation? Where is it going to end? And so these kind of factors all coming together in this moment is a consolidation of a, of a very long-term situation um, in the region, spearheaded primarily by um, Israel's behavior, that has kind of inevitably led us to this point. And even if regional war is skirted in this in, in the near future, it doesn't change the fundamental con conditions and contradictions that underpin this part of the world that has and will continue to be a tinderbox unless something significantly changes. Wars with no end tend to happen, or rather campaigns with no end tend to happen when you get fundamentalist ethno-states um, attempting to seize more territory and power. We've seen that throughout history. Let's go on to our next story. Bosses at the FTSE 100 companies can down their tools. That's because by 1pm today, their pay had already exceeded the £34,963. That is the annual median wage for full-time workers in the UK. Now, the FTSE 100 is a list of the 100 biggest companies in the UK, Unfortunately, these FTSE counterparts on the FTSE 350 will have to keep on working until the 10th of January to pass that same milestone. Get the violins out now. To ask just how these grossly high earners impact the rest of the economy, I spoke earlier to Luke Hilljard, director of the think tank, the High Pay Centre. I began by asking him how much the average FTSE 100 boss earns in a year. The median pay is about uh, a shade under four million. What's interesting about that, I think, is it's now over 100 times what the uh, median full-time UK worker earns. If you looked in the late 1990s, it would have been more like 50 or 60 times. And in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, it'd be more like 10 or 20 times. Now, there's no really obvious reason for that increase. The job hasn't got any more difficult. The executives haven't got any better. What's a more likely cause of it is that uh, the executives uh, and business leaders have got more control over the governance process. Employment rights have weakened. Trade union presence has diminished, meaning ordinary workers get less of a share or are empowered to get less of a share of the wealth that the created by the company as a whole, uh, with the result being that the executives, those at the top, get more and their pay is inflated relative to those in the middle and at the bottom. One of the arguments we see made a lot is that if you attract really high-earning people to the UK, then they will somehow reinvest that money into the UK, so eventually it trickles down anyway. Do we actually see any evidence of this trickle down as these wages are going up with the top earners? The UK has been one of the most unequal economies in the um, in the high income world, uh, and yet our economic growth and pay, in particular, for middle earners and low earners, has been stagnant for the best part of two decades. Um, I don't think anyone uh, would dispute that the UK tends to be uh, more to the sort of laissez-faire free market end of. Uh, of major economies and also that um, our living standards and our economy has been pretty moribund. So I'd say the case for trickle-down economics is um, is exceptionally weak. On this idea that the super-rich uh, invest in wider prosperity, you also hear a similar argument that they pay a lot of tax. 
that's perhaps true to an extent. But of course, if the super rich have all the money, they're going to do all the investment and pay all the tax. If money, if pay that was accruing to a tiny number of top executives was distributed more evenly uh, across the wider workforce, then uh, ordinary workers being paid more would pay more tax and they'd have a bit more money left over to put into savings to be invested. So I think, um, you know, it's a bit of a misnomer, the idea that the uh, that the super rich create prosperity for the uh, for the rest of us. It's more that they extract it and uh, you know stop the wider prevent the wider population from uh, having the resources to pay a bit more tax or to fund investment themselves. Is there any sort of link between these massive wages in the private sector, the increasing power of these private sector figures? And the crumbling sort of public services and crumbling welfare state that we're seeing for everybody else, it seems to be the result of a certain type of ideology to me. The state of public services is undoubtedly a a function of how much tax people contribute. And clearly, there's massive scope for people at the top to pay more in tax, whether that's through uh, higher taxes on very high incomes or through taxes on wealth, which is taxed very lightly, even as household wealth as a proportion of uh, of GDP has exploded in um, in recent years. So I I definitely think that that, uh, that that that's the case that we could that there is a link between crumbling public services and uh, the you know the concentration of income and wealth amongst the super rich. And if you think you need about to be one of the uh, top one percent in terms of income in the UK, you need income of uh, something like one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand pounds, right? So if you're making two hundred thousand pounds, you're making uh, over six times what someone in the middle of the income distribution is making. You're already incredibly generously rewarded. Uh, for however hard you work or any success you might have, if we accept the very dubious contention that rich people work harder or uh, you know are more productive than uh, than the rest of us, um, on that kind of income, think about the you know the, the car you'd be able to drive, the house you'd be able to live in, the kind of holidays you'd be able to to take. It's a very generous reward if you think we even if you think we need some level of inequality to. Uh, incentivize success and productivity. When you get up to the um, the pay levels that we're talking about in this research, CEOs paid three, four, five million. That's so clearly excessive beyond what would constitute a sensible uh, reward or incentive for hard work and productivity. It's just a question of efficiency. It'd be much more sensible to get more of that either directly into the pockets of uh, low and middle earners or into public services that benefit the whole of society rather than just being used to make rich people even richer. What is the high pay centre advocating we do when it comes to these massive inequalities in salaries and wealth? Because it is very sensible what you're suggesting, but it's going to be very difficult to get these people who've accrued massive amounts of capital and massive amounts of power with it to give up their millions of pounds that they're getting annually and redistribute it to the rest of us. 
I think it's really important to note that in the past year, there's been a really concerted campaign to raise top pay for high earners even further by big businesses in the financial services industry. Um, a number of city figures spoke out on the topic uh, last year. Cor a corporate lobby firm produced a big report saying that scrutiny of executive pay was an inconvenience for our biggest businesses and creating downside risks to the economy. And because the voice of big business is uncritically accepted as being aligned with the national economic interest, as opposed to representing uh, the voice of a handful of wealthy executives and investors. There's a danger that this becomes received wisdom. You've already seen traces of that in government consultations reviewing how to reduce boards accountability to shareholders and regulators. Um, and in an economy like the UK, which is characterised by widespread inequality, low productivity, precarious, low paid work, we should be doing the exact opposite of that, making businesses with enormous power over our lives more accountable to their workers and to democratic bodies. Um, and some ways to do that might be through worker representation on boards, compulsory share awards for company workers, or sectoral governance bodies to oversee pay and employment practices in, uh, in particularly problematic sectors uh, in terms of their uh, pay inequality and working conditions like uh, the care sector or hospitality. Is it likely those things will be realised or is that something that the high pay centre are working on with an eye for a potential Labour government being up next in 2024? Labour have committed to reviewing corporate governance policies uh, and, the, um, and the business governance uh, regime, which could include progressive measures like introducing worker representation on company boards, rewriting uh, directors' legal duties so that they have more responsibility for the social and environmental impact that their company has. Labour have also committed to a new deal for working people, which could include stronger employment rights, stronger trade union rights, which is really important to ensuring that um, Ordinary workers are more empowered to get a fairer share of the wealth that their labour creates for their employer. And a little bit less of that goes to the super rich executives and investors at the top. But uh, in both those areas, corporate governance and employment rights, the, um, the agenda that Labour have put forward so far is, is pretty thin. There's no real detail or substance to it. And whether that substance will be sufficiently um, you know, bold and and robust to achieve the kind of changes to the um, to the UK economy and the problems that we have with inequality, low productivity, precarious work uh, remains to be seen. That was Luke Hildyard of the High Pay Centre speaking to me earlier today. Thank you so much, Dahlia, for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me, lovely. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We're here again tomorrow for another show for 6pm. For now, you have been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.